Hey, everybody, welcome back to Crazy Money. This is your pal Paul here. It is a great day to be alive. I hope you're enjoying these 24 hours and making the most of them. I'm pleased to share with you my conversation this week with a guy I've, I've just met. I'm happy to know that he exists. His name is Gary Cernovitz, and he is one of the funniest financial writers that I've encountered in a long time. His hilarious new novel is called The Counting House, and it tells the story of a university's chief investment officer. You've heard of endowments? Like college endowments, chief investment officers are in charge of trying to grow that endowment through savvy investing in stocks, bonds, hedge fund type things, and other alternative investments. And this guy, whose name is chief investment officer, is, uh, well, he's suffering a little bit of a midlife crisis, (laughs) and uh, his performance isn't quite what it used to be. It's a very funny, relatable novel. If you are in finance and or you have a sense of humor You will love this book, The Counting House. Did I say finance or finance? Call it whatever you want to call it. Call it finance. Finance. How can I finance that house? Uh, I'm going to borrow money. All right. Before I give you more information about Gary, I want to tell you that I am hitting the road in 2024. That's right. I am going to be performing comedy somewhere near you. And tickets, friends, are on sale for the following shows. Austin, Texas, January 11th. San Francisco, California. You've heard of it? Home of the smash and grab? Yes, but we're not going to mention that while we're there. Target might be abandoning. Starbucks might be abandoning downtown San Francisco, but not me. I'm coming to San Francisco on February 22nd. I'll be in Nashville, Tennessee on February 28th. These are co-headlining shows that I'm doing with my buddy Paul Faravar. They're called Two Pauls, One Show. Those are all on sale. I will also be at the White Horse Black Mountain in Black Mountain, North Carolina on December 30th. I'm doing shows at Dunwoody Country Club, Capital City Club in January, Piedmont Driving Club, March 20th, Atlanta Athletic Club, tentatively scheduled April 18th, D.C. Comedy Loft in Washington, D.C., April 19th and 20th, back in Denver, May 3rd and 4th, headlining the Denver Comedy Lounge, and then I'll be doing the Boulder Comedy Show on May 5th, and Cary Theater, the Cary Theater in Cary, North Carolina, i.e. Suburban Rolla. Rala. <laughs> Hope to see you guys there. If you don't live in one of these places, please tell your friends that do live in these places. Again, the following tickets are already on sale. Austin, January 11th, San Francisco, February 22nd, and Nashville, February 28th. Can't wait to see you out there. Let's talk about Gary Cernovitz. Gary has spent the last 25 years observing and commenting on how money works in the world. And he has great insider knowledge, having worked at Goldman Sachs and in the private equity business for a couple of decades. He brings a very keen writer's eye to the subject. He's written two previous novels and a nonfiction account of the oil and gas industry. Riveting stuff there, the oil and gas industry. But from what I understand, it was actually very insightful and pretty funny. Uh, He's also written a bunch of essays for The New York Times, The New Yorker, and The Wall Street Journal. He's a native of Milwaukee. Wisconsin and a longtime resident of New York, but he gets to live in the Big Easy. That's right, in New Orleans with his wife and daughter. And this novel, again, The Counting House, I laughed out loud a whole bunch. It's dry, it's inside baseball, but it's super funny. And I am glad to know that Gary exists because I love somebody who takes humor and the creative process really seriously while being out there working in the corporate world. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Gary Cernovitz. Just testing out my new my new look. I'm very proud of my new look. It's, uh, you look excellent with your. Would new... you like fries or a shake with uh, with this? 
I had like a lifetime subscription to Time Time Life magazine <laughs> and all the uh, the World at War videotapes, the collection. We have uh, just the Pacific Theater now. Just Pacific Theater is available in 18 video cassettes. So <laughs> the European Theater is if you resubscribe next year. Oh, man, you guys have all these hooks to keep me on, on the line. You were in New Orleans today, is that correct? That's where I am at home, yeah. So did you go there for your, your private equity gig? No, no, there is no industry or private equity in, in New Orleans. My wife got a job at Tulane. Uh-huh. So I had been in New York City for 21 years, and she got a job down here as an English professor. And so sort of on, on a spousal uh, support and kind of parental insanity, because we had a six-month-old at the time. Uh, we moved to a city we knew nothing about. I'd been here twice for uh, 24 hours apiece. And then <laughs> she hated the job as soon as we moved down here. So we don't even, we're now there's no reason we're down here, except we actually have learned to love it. Yeah, I was going to say you could be in worse places. Yeah. And unless you hate fun and great food. Or like competence and a healthy economy <laughs> and schools <laughs> and autumn winter and uh home insurance and uh oh you know, all those things all those things unless you like all those things so how does a guy go from goldman sachs to writing novels and and essays and all kinds of stuff like that yeah i mean i think part of it is i came into goldman sachs pretty lightly in that I, I graduated college in 1995, which uh, mm -hmm. a fun fact for you was that 1973, the year of my birth, was the demographic nadir in American history post-baby boom. But, you know, kind of like 3 million live births versus about no 4 kidding. million baby boom, 4 million today. Huh. Think about it. It's like... That's how you got into Goldman was just yeah, there wasn't there... Zero other people. That's how I got into college. That's how I got into everything. Like these poor <laughs> schmucks today born with all the competition. But, you know, definitely, you know, demographics, not destiny, but it was clearly a very, you know, you look back at all the cultural things about, oh, my parents were relaxed and you didn't have to worry about getting it. That's because there's like a third less people trying to do all these things. And also even like the immigration reforms of the 60s, you know, were not really kind of probably kicking into a lot, a lot more sort of young kids coming to the country. So I, I always wanted to be an academic myself. Wanted to be a historian. As a kid, you like going back that far, you wanted to be a historian? I had little, my daughter now has them, little Britain's toy soldiers of uh, the Duke of Wellington versus Napoleon. And You must have done so well with the ladies, with the uh, uh, with those uh, dolls of yours. I got married at 39, probably. Uh, your probably diagnosis <laughs> is, is correct. And that was... I was 38 and a half, so I'm not oh, sure. <laughs> I, I won't be passing judgment on that, on that level. Yeah, so, and then... Summer before my senior year, I did some research in London on the undergraduate thesis, and sitting in the British Library and looking around and decided the world didn't need a Jewish guy from Milwaukee to add to the already full library filled with native Brits studying their own history. So kind of came back to college my senior year, a little bit uh, adrift. I mean, I was a good student and I was interested in, in other things, but had it's just very random options before me. One, some buddies are going to California to make it, whatever that meant. Got a job offer to be a speechwriter for the Parks Commissioner of New York City, kind of. And then the third was the one Wall Street job I'd applied to was the Equity Research Department at Goldman, primarily because they were the only ones that allowed you to apply to equity research. And I didn't know what equity research was. 
So I, I thought I was going to be writing uh, reports on, on deep issues of the day rather than sort of stock calling. And that equity like, research means you're looking into companies and running deep analysis on their financial positions and market prospects, et cetera. Assigned to the oil and gas group. So it was like Exxon, Chevron, and, and, and the refiners. Mm. And that was a different era. So deep analysis may be, you know, more what people do today in a much more competitive environment, running very complicated models. But at that time, it was a simpler era. Like Exxon made a billion dollars in international upstream next quarter. How do we get that number? You ask Exxon, what are you going to make in international upstream <laughs> right, next quarter? Right, they, yeah. they would never mislead you. Come on. Never, well, you know, it was like it was like a very genteel. And, you know, it was more about sector rotation and broad stock picking and things like that rather than i mean just the amount of the sophistication of analysis in equity research today is is mind-boggling even though it's like a deeply less profitable business yeah and then you know kind of did that enjoyed it enjoyed putting on a suit you know and you know enjoyed you know kind of that first job out of college you know workplace camaraderie and then got promoted after a couple of years to work on Latin American oils. And then just one day, one month, I had really kind of deep insomnia and woke up in the middle of the night and started working on a novel that I don't know where it came from. I don't know why I started writing it, but got kind of 80 to 90 pages into it. And then uh, like uh, a jackass, I told everyone at Goldman Sachs I was quitting to finish my novel. <laughs> Which is, uh, you know, in, uh, in hindsight, it's amazing that anyone there still talks to me. And again, it was, I think, finance. I kind of got it. You know, I kind of acquired it loosely. This wasn't my dream from reading the Wall Street Journal at four yeah. years old. You know, my parents were you know, kind of supportive, but also, again, back to the demographics, not terribly worried about me. And I did that. And I wrote for six years. I lived in you know the East Village. I wrote two novels. They sold dozens of copies, maybe yeah. multiple dozens of copies each. You know, they were published and, you know, ranging from polite to snarky reviews in limited places. And But that began, and really after I started writing the novel, there was whole gaps in my education as a writer that I, I had never, you know, I'd never read Moby Dick. You know, I'd never read a lot of the classics. I'd never read a lot of that because I was a history major. I'd taken a lot of English classes and always been a big reader of novels. So I had to go back and really over those six years, educate myself, living very, very cheaply in a you know classic studio apartment in, in the city where sunlight uh, two to two thirty every day during the summer. Right. Open the jar of ragu on Monday and try to get it to last till till Friday and and all, all of that. So did that for six years, had a couple projects in there, including a, a ghost wrote a book for some guys at Price Waterhouse Coopers on accounting for the telecom industry a fascinating fascinating topic i can send you a copy if you're if you're curious did you option that to hollywood by any chance <laughs> it's actually napoleon joaquin phoenix is based on this book uh, <laughs> nice yeah <laughs> nice uh, yeah hollywood just does uh, it does crazy things with source material like, uh, unlimited options no so i and then guys who founded the private equity firm i work work for now work for for nearly 20 years had been in the equity research department at goldman with me they had asked me in 98 to join them, and I made it clear that I was going to become the new Philip Roth and had no need for finance ever again, and thank you for your <laughs> insulting offer to make money. And then in 2004, at a wedding of a guy who we all worked with and actually went on to work both places, they said, hey, can you just write something PPM for us for, we'll pay you a 
I think it was like a thousand dollars a week in 2004. And I said, sure, you know, I would like to get a second jar of spaghetti sauce that week. So that that extra revenue would allow that maybe even, you know, go out to a bar. And uh, then they said, can you stay a couple more months? And then et cetera, et cetera. Here I am 20 years later with a very different job that I was hired for just in, in the general, in the general scheme of things. I certainly relate to a, a person with corporate potential and artistic dreams. I don't know how much you know about my background, but I spent a long time in uh, the digital media world and I've been doing stand-up comedy for nine years full time. And it's hard, man. I mean, like, how do you balance the the focus on doing a good job at your work and not feeling like you're not earning your money and at the same time allowing yourself to grow as an artist and giving your projects the sunlight and the and the water they deserve? Today, I would not want my firm to audit my internet use <laughs> where Amazon's starting to cut me off to check. Yeah, no, no, this, we don't update the sales minute by minute, Jackass. Please, please yeah. log off, please. Yeah, so sure. you know, it goes in waves. I think two things that have been very helpful for me. One is, you know, kind of I'm a writer who doesn't need to kind of like express myself, you know, to wrestle with my demons. And every day I'm journaling and all this kind of stuff. Like, you know, I kind of get gripped by projects that Mm -hmm. feel like they have to be written for the world, but like something that is not out there that I want there to be out there. But that can be, you know, this is my first novel and 11, 12 years, I've written two books, and they've both been relatively written in, in a fury. Uh, you know, and so I think first is just like, it's a limited time of where really like I want to write everything I can here um, about this. I think second is at a firm, they've been very, I mean, these are guys I've known since I was 22, they were 24 and 26. Sure, and, you know, yeah. they kind of find this all sort of cool and interesting and occasionally a little worried that it's too embarrassing, you know, or kind of not less so that I'll take time from them, then, then it will be like, what are our investors going to think, you know, or, you know, what, what is a bank going to think about this? And then I think the, the final is just the home front. My wife's tolerant of this. You know, I get up early and I'm also on planes and hotels a lot. So a lot of this book is written on planes and hotels yeah. and, and, and on Saturday mornings when, you know, kind of giving me time off from the uh, already sort of mediocre job I do as a father. So I think. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, the good thing about being a dad is that the uh, expectations are very low. And, you know, just that that's the best part of the male parent experience. (laughs) As my comedian friend, Sally Brooks says, you want maximal praise for minimal effort. And she wants to be a dad is what she says. So do you ever have to edit yourself in terms of, especially in today's environment, political environment, edit yourself about what you write, even in the book, which we'll dive deep into, there's uh, political office situations that the mere mention of which at certain companies might get you a, uh, a call from the HR department. Yeah. You know, it's hard. I mean, it's hard on like a lot of levels, as I'm sure you know, is a comedian, you're trying to surprise people and humor has to sometimes, you know, have that element of surprise and relief to work. There's also my joke is, you know, there is a now a cultural expectation that you stay in your lane as an artist. I was like, no book could be more in my lane than a book about like a 52 year old Jewish white man who's, you know, who's, <laughs> you know, having a mild professional and 
spiritual crisis. So, you know, I was very aware of that and sort of part of the, you know, underlying, you know, kind of reason this form came to be is, is those kind of pressures. And then there are some trying to build characters around it where, I mean, it's hard and you blink, you know, blink, you kind of close your eyes, you jump in the deep end and you hope you don't get it wrong. But trying to balance of both, you know, not just having a novel solely filled with 52-year-old white Jewish men talking to each other about about themselves. But so it's it's hard. And, you know, yeah, I think luckily I'm a very small target for the culture, you know, <laughs> relative to a more famous or successful writer. But it's, it's definitely hard. You talk about, and I've been struggling to, to figure out where to take this conversation in my pre-interview preparation, because I want to talk about the novel without having any spoiler alerts. But Suffice to say, so we'll dance around the edges and talk about some of the key themes, but it's set, the novel is set, as you mentioned, in the university endowment management office of a top tier, but not quite Ivy League institution. Why did you choose to set it in this setting? So I think the original impulse for the book was, you know, the last book I wrote was sort of a fun, light, but, you know, fact-driven primer on the show revolution. And I've always thought like that model worked okay for that book. And I've always thought this is the age of alternatives, like private equity, hedge funds, like let's find a way to write about it. And it was always kind of the idea is let's get the band back together and do it sort of in the same format. But clearly, as I you know said before, if an idea doesn't grip me as necessary, I'm because that book's probably been written a hundred times already. And, you know, someone's writing about this stuff. And so I kind of didn't know what to do with it. I was kind of moping around the house, not writing, uh, decrying the culture for not recognizing my unparalleled genius, uh, you know, and <laughs> fathering, you know, for lack of anything better to do to, to, get, to get the maximal praise that was available to me. And my wife said, hey, why don't you just write a couple pages of fiction you haven't done in a decade? And so go, go to your room, little boy, and go, go write something. And she even, yeah, there's a story I tell that didn't actually make it to the final novel. She said, start there. And so I did it. And sort of the whole novel clicked together. That was, you know, years of thinking about this other project. And I knew I wanted to make it about sort of what investing means today in the Mm. institutional context. And intuitive decision was, doing it from an asset allocator perspective than just more narrow person because that, that role of an asset allocator gets pitched by everyone and kind of has probably that best bird's eye view of what investing means today across asset classes, across types. And then a very quick gut decision, you know, not even decision, sort of intuited that endowments are probably the most glamorous talked about form of asset allocation. You know, they're written about all the time. There are people are protesting and that, you know, and, and this may be an extraordinarily boring topic that is a dumb subject for a novel, but it's probably better than if it was like a, you know, a public pension fund officer who really no one, <laughs> no, 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 no one would care. Or a corporate it's pension Calpers. fund. Right. Yeah, Calpers, yeah. The, Calper, the true Calper story. So I, and then novels get like their own energy and own plot twist once you start writing them. So all this stuff about the trustees and the university president and, and kind of professors and stuff, that all kind of came after that initial decision as you're just trying to build this world, build this world around it. So we have both very sophisticated financial people who listen to this podcast and and lay people as well. So let's talk about what endowments do. So the protagonist in this book is the chief investment officer of the university. So what is his job? What is he 
well, what's his job? <laughs> I guess. His job is, you know, the university has $6 billion and mm-hmm. it can do anything it wants with it. And most universities give about four to 5% of that per year. And depending on the university, it can be 30 to 60% of the university is supported by the four to 5% of their endowment um, in a kind of a very typical case. So his job is to, you know, on a, on a daily level is to make not that many decisions. Like we have this money with this hedge fund, this money with this private equity fund, this money with this S&P index fund, this money with in cash. Mm-hmm. And it's not like an actively traded book where he's doing it. So it's to make not that many decisions, but ultimately judged on how much he can contribute to the university at the same time, grow the endowment for you know future generations. And so it's, it's one to where there's a lot of thinking, a lot of self-reflection, a lot of, you know, kicking the tires, but not one filled with daily decisions to try to achieve something that he cares deeply about. And before the novel started, he thought he was very good at. I want to get back to his self-identity because that's a huge theme in performance as evaluation of who he is as a person. But so a college endowment, you always hear this whenever, and I used to work in university fundraising. So you always hear this, hey, tuition doesn't cover the full cost of, of the education here. So that gap between the total cost of an education and tuition is filled with both donations to the university and the performance of the endowment, that 4% on $6 billion. And one of the quirks and frustrations for university, and this isn't universal, but broadly speaking, the university endowment is actually filling the operating budget. So paying professor salaries, kind of doing a lot of that, the facilities. A lot of time donors give money because they want their name on a building or mm-hmm. a climbing wall or a stadium or something like that. And <laughs> right, so yeah. I think endowment managers are always frustrated that they're not the most glamorous, but probably the most essential part of the financial health of the university. And probably, as you know, from University of Fundraising, it's, you know, there's probably an you know, internal tension between what you're asking money for. And obviously, the, in, in the perfect world, the university would have maximum flexibility that you would just write us a check and we can do anything we want with it. Yeah. And there's the the tension between the short term and the long term, right? It's those, you know, hey, your annual fund gift is unrestricted versus that restricted giving for the climbing wall yeah. or even for the endowment. Yeah, exactly. So this guy, and what's interesting also about a university campus is that, you know, if I were the manager of a hedge fund, I would be judged based strictly on the number at the end of the year. But a university endowment has different stakeholders that they have to keep happy. Who are some of those stakeholders? Yeah, I mean, I think first of all is like it is it can be very political. So, you know, I was just talking to someone from a large Big Ten school earlier today and mentioned that the school is the students of this school have asked the state attorney general of this state to look into its investment into the oil and gas sector and whether they're violating their fiduciary responsibility and like the levels of like madness to this, independent of what you think about climate change or stuff, about whether, you know, this is actually a violation of fiduciary what estate, but it's like, that's the kind of stuff like you don't have to deal with in your hedge fund. You know, the other one is there is a tension between you're the help, you know, in the endowment office, you're not tenured faculty, you're not the university president. And most schools like this one have a board of trustees that are filled with big hitters on Wall Street who have a lot of opinions. So, and it varies institution to institution, but some will, you know, be able to, you know, the governance, you know, kind of hold the big egos 
to the side and we'll, we'll report. But some like people are calling in with ideas or calling in or criticizing. Like, I know that guy golf with them. He's a jerk. You know, it's like stuff like that is, is sort of a constituency you have to deal with. So you're dealing with both like the fundamental pure investing. And it's not just like the highest return. It's also risk management because you don't want to, you know, you're, you have a very big duty every year to support this institution. So you're not just trying to hit the lights out every year, but also dealing especially with, you know, the university community, which most vocally is the students on very specific issues, primarily climate in Israel, you know, for the most part, and the trustees who can fire you at any time. Right. And to the rest of the faculty, you're extraordinarily well paid. You're three times as expensive as the top leading particle physicist. And yet to the board, you're not really that special because these guys are worth hundreds of millions of dollars and they're senior managing partners or, you know, whatever, directors at Wall Street houses. And so you're sort of caught in between. And all the while, you've got activist faculty and students who really don't understand the role of endowment or would take very unkindly to increasing tuition by 10% to compensate for the loss of performance were you to curtail your investment in oil and gas, but believe that you should be able to deliver whatever the university requires of you within some arbitrary, politically approved investment strategy. And on top of this, you have parents who are like, you know, this is $70,000 a year. Like, how how could this not cover the cost of an education, you know, versus what it was 25 years ago or 50 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. As you say later in the book, you're working for an institution that has negative gross margins despite charging $70,000 a year, despite half the families paying that in cash and the other half, and I'm paraphrasing your, your writing here, and the other half borrowing that to turn their children into social media influencers and investment bankers. It's an interesting institution in today's world. It is one where, yeah, very confusing sort of how it got itself into these pickle. And partly it's competition, partly it's because schools think they need to provide more. And partly it's a lot of schools find the way to support their, you know, with cheap loans for kind of federal student loans or parents who can, can pay it. So yeah, there are the, the economics are not, are not explicable, even when you've spent a lot of time thinking about them. Hey, everybody, we'll be right back with Gary in just a second, but I want to talk to my Spotify listeners for just a second. Yes, Spotify listeners, you are growing all the time, and there's some cool features that I want to make sure that you know exist so that you can interact and help grow the Crazy Money podcast. First of all, click on Crazy Money with Paul Ollinger and go to the page that is our show page and click, if you have not already done so, please click follow on that show page so that Spotify knows that you like the show and you'd like to have uh, new episodes appear closer to the top of your suggestions and things like that. Also, Spotify has created this cool new thing where you can answer questions after you listen to the episode. What did you think about the episode today? Please take a second and write a reply, share some thoughts about the show, what other people might get out of it and why you like it. And in general, if you have other suggestions for me, uh, please take a second to email me at paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. That's paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. Thank you very much. Get on with your Spotify selves. What's different about the university landscape today than when you graduated from school? 
I don't know. I mean, I haven't really set foot back. I mean, I've, it, comically, there was a talk about it. Like, I spent a lot of time in endowment offices. Most of the endowment offices are far away from the university. <laughs> like, is that a coincidence? No, I'm not, because I think it's the issue. Like, you know, you have the CIO, you have the basketball coach, are probably the two highest paid. Maybe the university presidents between them, and maybe it's a football, is the football school or basketball school, right? Yeah. So, you know, so I, I think you know, in terms of like you know the economics of the university, I mean, that's night and day. You know, there's also obviously, as I'm not an expert on this, but you know, in these kind of institutions that were like this school is probably filled with what I was like the upper middle class of, from the provinces. I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and <laughs> right. my school sent a lot of people to University of Wisconsin where a top third of the class automatically got in. And then a lot of people to others, you know, not a lot of, but probably 25, 30, one at each school. Cause those schools are like, well, we got it. You know, this is a good school in Milwaukee. So we're going to take one a year, you know, sort of. And it does feel like that, you know, sort of bright, well-rounded kid, which was, which all I was is sort of at a different place from schools. Yeah. Some of it's for very good reasons, because they're much more diverse and they're much more focused on economic diversity. Some of it's for bad reasons, because the son of the orthodontist in uh, Indianapolis has a slot, but the son of the billionaire from the Upper East Side is better for the endowment or better for the climbing wall. So it, it's a mix of those two. The vibe I'm getting everything I read about college is that that the son or daughter of that orthodontist isn't getting in quite as much. I mean, not to those top schools. Because they're full pay, they can go to Trinity and, you know, schools kind of like one step down from the Ivies, but they're not getting in, you know, to those schools that are, that's going to the the 0.1% kid, right? One of the reasons I want to ask you about what you think has changed is one of the quotes you have in here is, there's a lot of these great Jerry Maguire type rants in the book from both board members and the CIO and, and another character we meet later in the book. And one of them says, think about Duke, Emory, Northwestern, Michigan, Rice, Vandy, Wash, U, USC. When we were kids, whoever thought about these schools outside of sports, unless you live nearby, they were rich kids schools for regional rich kids. But when you think about these schools now, people really admire them academically. Even jerk offs at Goldman are impressed if someone's kid goes to Duke or Rice. And why? And so the, I asked the question, why? Is it, it's all about money, right? It's about money, but it's also the demographics getting back to it. Like, you know, it's harder to get into all of these schools. Before, Princeton said, we're going to take one kid from Nicolet High School. It wasn't me, but we're going to take one kid from Nicolet High School <laughs> every year. Now Princeton's like, maybe we take one kid from Southeastern Wisconsin every year, you know, just given the other pressures. And so I think these other schools you know, have grown. I think the other thing is like the internet, you and I applied, you know, you're getting brochures in the mail. You had to type up applications on a yeah. freaking typewriter. It was really <laughs> kind of real commitment to it now with like a common app and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. And so, you know, people know Duke's a great school, but I, I remember like, you know, looking back on it, you know, and I cringe a little bit. You know, I went to Cornell and I obviously had a very good education. I'm happy to have gone there. But to think about a woman I graduated high school with went to Duke out of Milwaukee it's like I didn't even know. I didn't even know you were in school. I, uh, how'd you get it? And like, but but it wasn't like everyone was like incredibly jealous. It was like, where, where get out the is that South Carolina, North Carolina? That has completely changed and sort of a cultural phenomenon broadly of sort of the nationalization of everything. Where you know, is there regional anything as much anymore as, as there once was? Let's talk about the chief investment officer again, the protagonist of the book. Who? What's the dilemma he's going through right now? You know, I think every novel, you know. Uh, an ado. It's a good crossword puzzle clue 
or answer. It's always going to do. You need some fuss to start this. And so this one, the simplest one, and the classic one in any novel, is things were going well, and now they're going poorly. So that's the cheapest to do you can find in the novelist mm-hmm. uh, do mm-hmm. factory. And you see this every year. The Times and the Wall Street Journal, usually both, write about the CIO genius of the year. And it's like someone who's had a recent track right. record or five year or three year did really good. It's like amazing, Brown you know, this this university, that university. And so this guy two years ago was that guy. Deservedly. I mean, he had good numbers and he figured I finally found it. Now, at the start of the novel, everything's going wrong. The numbers aren't good. And remember, these are not numbers because he went long Tesla and short Exxon. These are numbers from hedge funds and other thing that he's invested in. So his numbers aren't good. And so not only is there like the practical impact, which doesn't really in the timeline of the book, it's not like the university that, you know, there's a budget cut of $100 million because he screwed up. But that is an implication that he's worried about. But it was more about his self-image that something he feels he had figured out how to do. Nothing seems to be working and making him question, what have I figured out? Am I good at this? Am I good at anything? What am I doing with my life? What's the purpose of life? All these big questions that these kind of existential crises throw throw anyone into. How do the generational issues play into his dilemma? Yeah, you know, I think he, there's not much, I mean, this book is very, very uh, free of a lot of the classic things a novel has, like home scenes and walking the dog and, you know, and, and so there's hints mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of his personal life, a few sentences, a paragraph. But one of it is, you know, kind of came from, and this is definitely not based on my father, like a father who's kind of a middle manager, not very successful, but sort of grumpy, and also thought at the end of his life that he was going to be like a stock picker in like a very amateurish kind of way. So part of it is like a sense of like, he felt in a way to evolve the family line, finally someone had mastered something. And the interesting thing about his children, he has one kid who's you know, son who just plays video games all day. And he's like, well, this is the this is the end of the family line with me. And then he has a daughter who seems en route. I mean, they're kids and his wife. There's a yeah, you know, and again, these are not full scenes, but hence his wife tells him to leave his kids alone. But his daughter seems en route, but he has a line in there that's actually been a quite a resonant line with a few people. It's like, I've never for once imagined for my daughter who seems to be on a path to you know, good things to want to do the job I do, which is a strange thing because mm-hmm. he's, you know, he had been proud of what he did. He had been proud of his contribution to the world through the hundreds of millions of dollars he had generated. But then it goes back to the question of like, why is finance so important? Is it a good use of a life? Is it, it does it get too much attention? Does it take too much of our best and brightest cliche versus other things people could be doing? He's an interesting character, too, who loves to joke and quote movie lines. And so he certainly resonated with me along those lines. And when you start quoting movie lines, you see a big difference between the person who's quoting them and the audience around him who are next generation people who are like, what the hell are you talking about? So when your performance starts to fail and then you become less relevant to those around you and you've, you've lost the terra firma of look how good I am at my job, then everything sort of starts to spin out of control. Like, 
where do I fit in this whole puzzle? And now I realize I completely mis misanswered your prior question uh, when you're talking about the generational <laughs> lines within the office. But that's also another factor of the book where, you know, he is sort of a, on an island alone generationally, but also mm -hmm. sort of feels very lonely in this job because there's a 15 year gap to the next and then a, probably a 10 year gap to the next rung of people and had a very sort of idiosyncratic, but, you know, kind of avuncular shtick that suddenly starts to curdle if, you, if you're not a winner. But he's not some creepy, you know, stereotypical investment banker or, you know, stock trader or trader from 30 years ago that, you know, we might have seen in Wall Street or whatever. He's sort of a low-key intellectual who just really digs the stocks, but he is out of step with where things are in the world, kind of. How have you seen the investment management business change in the 25 plus years that you've been doing it? I think, I mean, it's, I mean, I started at Goldman. I remember early on, like Fidelity, you know, State Street, Scudder, like big mutual fund complex were the important clients. And you took them out for steak dinner. And they'd vote for you in Institutional Investor Magazine. And you had to be right. And you, that, that mattered. But it was like probably felt more like the 1950s than today in terms of that business. And I remember there was an early time where you're we brought into the, the entire research department was brought in. And they said, there's this firm run by this guy, Steve Cohen, who's generating a lot of commission, you know, kind of trading volume for us. Just so you know, Fidelity may be not be our largest most important customer. It's important, but Steve Cohn is. And I think that sort of devolution is one to, you know, away from kind of the long only buy and hold to kind of this age of alternative assets where like very, very sophisticated specialists, you know, private equity funds, hedge funds, private credit funds, hedge funds with infinite number of strategies. Whereas kind of the long only, I just want market exposure is now, you know, in passive strategies on, on ETFs. And that makes, gets to a kind of a tyranny of choice because there are thousands and thousands and thousands of private equity funds and hedge funds and private credit funds of every imaginable strategy that makes it very difficult to, who's telling the truth, who's actually good, who's lucky, where it's not like one where you can just sort of fundamentally view like i just want to get eight percent returns through s p exposure i'll accept six and a half by going 60 40 for a professional allocator that feels not a, a viable option though you know there's a scene in the book where that conventional wisdom is also questioned long at the end of the book so well if you're just doing 60 40 sort of traditional you know passive investing why does this guy make a million and a half bucks a year that's the question you know that that's the question he asks himself and that's the question trustees are asking and he doesn't he thinks he can do better than that he had done better than that but sort of a hedge fund care you know the last fifth of the book is a, a sort of a reclusive hedge fund jerk but also a brilliant investor who calls him to task. It's a great long scene. And he really does question a lot of the things that a lot of us have taken for granted as best practices in investment strategy. You know, like at one point he says, why have a money manager? Could it be that 
why does a person have a money manager? Does that person want other psychic goods for outsourcing investment management? Because they don't want to take responsibility for it, basically. This applies to everybody who has a wealth manager or somebody they're paying up to 1% to manage their household wealth. What are you getting? Part of it is to abdicate responsibility for managing the wealth you've built up or that you've, you've inherited or however you've come to it. And the interesting thing is like, this is not like a surprise, like David Swenson and Pioneering Portfolio is like, don't do what I do. I have access to different kinds, to Sequoia, to Benchmark, to these kind of you know, amazing venture capital firms. You don't have access to that. Don't try to do what I'm doing at home. I have a staff of dozens of people that are able to unearth efficiencies. So the interesting thing on kind of an individual level is like, and, and talked about in the scene, like everyone's been given this advice their entire life as investors. Don't do this. But then again, just buy index, just buy index funds and yeah. leave them alone. And, but then again, everyone does it. You know, I mean, a lot of people do it. And again, part of it is there is reasons. There is this occult like, power that there is worth some amount of money to not have to think about it and to check in. Like my parents check in with their money manager at the end of the year. Do we still have money? Can we go on the cruise? <laughs> yes and yes. Right. Talk to you, uh, talk to you next year. Once a year, they talk to their money managers. I talked to him and they actually had to get permission for me to go on a Zoom like this with him because he's like, right. sometimes they don't, I say we should have our annual thing and they forget about it. But they don't have like dementia. They're like fully functioning, you know, late 70s people. Right. They're just like uninterested. Do they look at their statements every month or quarter? Ah, I think my mom does, but my mom's also like a person who like, keeps credit card receipts like a weirdo cross references yeah. her credit card i think she just likes doing that but uh, i don't think like i will air my parents financial life in front of in front of the world but you know they milwaukee wisconsin the great stock that came out of milwaukee wisconsin was cole's department store which was like one of the great runners mm. in the 90s and 2000s like like tech level appreciation every <laughs> every year for cole's department store anyway, they, <laughs> right my parent at one point uh, my parents mentioned like a very large percentage of their art worth <laughs> was in Cole's department store stock. And my dad had successful businesses and, and you know, his life. And, and, and I was like, well, that's stupid. It's like, well, it's been a very good stock. <laughs> you know, it's so just right. sort of that level of like the brain doesn't work seemingly for most yeah. people on this, that there is that, but the scene at the end of the book where they talk about it, it's not like resolved where you read that scene and think this, hedge fund manager who's saying there is no purpose of this don't do this he may be right yeah he was like the wedding guest you know like in the what is it the rhyme of the ancient yeah. mariner he walks away a wiser but sadder <laughs> man So what do you think? Like, who do you side with? Do you side with the idealism of the of the CIO or the guy who's focused his life and afforded himself no distractions or joy outside performance? The Rhyme of the Ancient Merit is a good precedent. I always thought of like the Grand Inquisitor scene in the Brothers Karamazov where it's, I mean, this book, very mm. little happens, as you know, in the book. There's a lot of conversations, sometimes by phone, sometimes in the conference room. And once he walks outside. So this is the whole book. And I just realized that's true. Yeah. And so, but this scene is like in an office, not even a particularly nice office. For me as an author, this is supposed to be like a, you know, like a gripping U.S. Open final tennis match, you know, or the equivalent mm. in the world of 
the ideas of investing and you want guy to be up, 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 up. He's got this down and then suddenly, you know, he breaks the serve and comes back. So that was the sort of the intention of the scene that there is no clear winner. I think generally me kind of philosophically, how I live my life, sort of humane but muddled is like me, you know, <laughs> versus particularly effective and successful. Ultimately, you know, if there's some ego into it, the humane, muddled, compassionate person, but maybe wrong, you know, on the facts, you know, has my sympathy. But the point of the book is, you know, the final scene, which I, I won't spoil, you don't know if that's going to win until the last words of the book. What's interesting about that culmination is that you've got this guy who's, you know, the CIO who's in the 99th percentile of skill and knowledge, at least about theory of investment management. And then you've got this Steve Cohen kind of guy, almost, who is, you know, a multi-multi-billionaire, who is a legendary investor, George Soros, whoever you want to say. And you'd think that the gap between them isn't that big. And yet there's this discrepancy in their status, their discrepancy in the commitment, the discrepancy in their philosophy that so clearly has led to it's similar to the to the structure of the 99th percentile in life in that you know people say the 1% if you're in the 1% you're rich yes you are but the person who is a half a percentage north of you is worth a billion dollars more than you are right. <laughs> right so there's this weird tension that they're both optically similar and yet realistically at completely different levels of competency true but also yeah, the investor has in some ways made himself into like a monster, right? In 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 some ways as as an individual. His competency is unassailable. But mm. I didn't want to make it easy. I mean, it would have been easy to make him a gregarious, philanthropic, wonderful man, you know, a Warren Buffett, 40 years younger. Then the, the novel mm -hmm. kind of falls apart in a way. And granted, the success for him as investor is also something I just invented. And as I always joke with people, there's like an old line, like the one character a writer can't write is a writer better than she is. You know, <laughs> uh, yeah, but you right, can write it. Yeah. You can invent a character who's a better investor than you are. And so, you know, mm. and so what Michael Herman, the name of this hedge fund guy is, uh, is a very, very, but it's like, that's all in the head. That all should work. I think I've created this, machine this human machine to do so but it's like obviously this world is filled with lots of aspiring michael hermans who never make it the cio has has competently delivered to his institution and there's the university president is kind of like someone described kind of the work wife to him in, in this book and i was like why are you so hard on yourself you have delivered performance but he says appreciation is not performance appreciation is just inertia you know is that's what happens with any amount of money performance is really you know mm -hmm. why do i do i justify my million and a half dollars a year okay should you just do 60 40 should you give it all to michael herman to manage yourself i mean these are yeah. all these are all theoretical options that no one no one does the end of the book made me ask one of the ask the question what's the point of having money beyond a certain point very good question i, I mean these are strong philosophical questions I have no answer to. But 
I think the nice, the, the construct of this character is he sees no point. He, you know, makes some uh, allusion to like, I'm not driving a Kia to prove I'm, you know, humble. But he also makes it clear he has no family, he has no philanthropic interest, he has he has nothing. He's just there to win in this sort of a sort of sort of way, and and kind of brings it to like its ultimate, and actually mocks the philanthropic crowd for doing so, and then sort of the hollowness of that. I just read this uh, the book about uh, Ray Dalio uh, over the weekend, mm-hmm. and that too seems to be the story of a man who had unlimited money and then just fell into a madness that his purpose in life was this megalomaniacal, um, you know, kind of propagation of these principles of his because having that money didn't satisfy him. Yeah. Because he wanted to become some kind of a philosopher. Yeah. Yeah. And, and wanted to change the course of humanity through adopting 270 separate, sometimes self-contradicting and hard to follow and mumbled principles. There's some line in the book about personal ambition being the enemy of, of performance, something like that. I, I was watching, I don't know if you saw this, the movie, the Blackberry movie that came out last, last year about research in motion and all that, which is, it's a fun, it's as, as a business person, you'd watch it and go like, it doesn't happen like that, but it was, but it's fun. But in the end, the CEO who at the at the height of BlackBerry's stock price, he's going out to buy a hockey team, and you can just see that he's taking his eye off the ball, and that instead of focusing on his real job, his distractions are literally keeping him from building this business. And so I just wondered, like, at what point, you know, what's the balance between performance and having a life? And if you're a person who's managing a book of business at any investment management firm or a hedge fund or whatever, how do you, how do you have a life and keep performing? Well, first of all, it has nothing to do with my firm, but these guys have very robust lives, <laughs> you know, weirdly. Yeah. I mean, I mean, rich people are very good at spending money. I mean, that's, they're, they're very good at spending money. And I think the issue that's happened and especially at this generation is remember, we just talked about when I got in the business, you know, 25 years ago, it was a much sleepier business with big mutual fund complexes, but all these fortunes of Schwartzman, of Cohn, of Ackman, of Dalio have emerged in the last 25 years, and the generational transfer hasn't happened. So the big challenge for these institutions, mm-hmm. they're all owner-operator. They're all a guy with an individual genius or an individual business model of handing it over to the next generation. That has been – and, right. and, and David Swenson talked about that's what the giving pledge is for. You mentioned well, the, the giving the next pledge. generation of your firm. I mean, that's what Dalio's madness has been. It's like, no one can replace me. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's what, you know, a lot of these yeah. institutions are, is like trying to turn from just like, you know, and I talk about, you know, the Max Weber, the, the charismatic to the bureaucratic style of management, where is Blackstone, not just Steve Schwartzman, individual genius, is it, is it something bigger? We haven't seen the end of this story of what works and doesn't work. And that goes back to another question we talked about, which is, is Wall Street just like wealth preservation or is it actually beating the market? Blackstone doesn't exist to help CalPERS beat the market. Blackstone exists to make an incredible amount of money helping people have a diversified exposure to get necessary appreciation they need to do whatever they need to do. 
which is probably very different than the common image of what Wall Street is around for, which is beat the S&P 500. How did writing this book affect your relationship with your alma mater in terms of should you donate, should you not donate? I've always been pretty mediocre at it. I'm definitely not on the uh, call list. My wife and I, uh, you know, are nice annual fund, modest amount. Right. Both of us feel like, you know, she went to Columbia, I went to Cornell. Like these are not institutions in tremendous need. I understand the economics. I understand like they're not doing above average stupid things with it. But, you know, New Orleans is a pretty poor city. And there's a lot more use of, of that charitable donation yeah. at the end than uh, Columbia University, which has $11 billion already sitting there, well-managed by a very, 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 very good CIO, and whether that's the best use. Um, and back to the earlier one is like, joke is like, yeah, if you're given $200 a year, you're probably hurting our daughter's chances of getting in because you're just kind of an asshole. <laughs> You have two hundred thousand dollars a year. Yeah, then you guarantee you get in. So it's like you're you sure you. Yeah. I feel that pain every time I get. I I went to business school at Dartmouth, and I get these. You know, I get I get these annual fund things, and I'm like, okay, here's five hundred right. or a thousand dollars. What are you going to do with it? What? And then I listen to these the reports on NPR or whatever about legacy admissions. It's like <laughs> I'm not showing up on that list. <laughs> this is my private paranoid theory, where to cut the legacy admissions. They're like, we're automatically going to reject the $200 assholes. Because it's like, we've rejected right. 90. You've given every yeah. year for 35 years. Yeah, I, it does, yeah, what yeah. Good it's does like, it do? we've rejected 92% of all legacies automatically because their parents uh, thought they could beat us with, uh, you know, with 200, yeah, and with the uh, Kushners are given $200,000 every, every month to get their kids in. So, yeah. That's hilarious. All right, Gary, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. The book is called The Counting House. I've read it. It's hilarious. It's uh, if you like Liar's Poker or Jared Dillion's Street Freak, you'll very much enjoy The Counting House. Uh, where can our listeners find out more about you? GaryCernovitz.com. You know, it's uh, not the easiest thing to spell, but, uh, you know, that has uh, stuff about the book and stuff about some of the other stuff I've written. It's all, it's all up there. Cernovitz is S-E-R-N-O-V-I-T-Z. But to make it easy, we'll put the link in the show notes. Gary Cernovitz, thanks for your time. Thanks for having me on. All right, Gary Cernovitz, everybody. Like I said, if you've got a dry sense of humor, you like finance. I said finance, not finance that time. And uh, you like to read. This is a fun book. It's a really fun book. And it'll it'll remind you of, some of these characters will remind you of other middle-aged people who are losing their minds. Unlike me, I'm not. I'm keeping it together. I've totally got it together. I'm not losing my mind. I feel good about life. All right, let's talk about some takeaways for Gary Cernovitz. One, Gary, as a human being, I really admire his commitment to continue to create, to write, while holding down a very meaningful job in the private equity world. I think it's incredible that he can keep both those balls in the air. And it's an interesting way to look at that, should I chase my dream question? Do you have to quit your job to chase your dream? No. Is there one right way to chase your dream? No. Would he be writing more if he didn't have a day job? Probably. Would he be losing his mind because he doesn't have nearly as much economic stability? Probably. There's trade-offs. You know, I think about the question, what, you know, what if? What if you chase your dreams? And there's not just one way to do it. And he writes good stuff. So good for him. Support him. 
in this drive. Go to the show notes and you can click on the link to buy his book at GaryCernovitz.com, S-E-R-N-O-V-I-T-Z.com. The other questions that I take away from this <laughs> from this novel have to do with middle age and performance. And, you know, this guy is having an identity crisis because he took his, his skill at investing for granted. And now that he's having a down year, it's creating an existential crisis for him. And this is very, very natural. You're not always going to win, you know? And I've got buddies who are in the investment management business who are active investment management business, not, not just wealth management, but like people out there running books and their job is to beat the market and beat the market by a lot. And I know that they are constantly thinking about that number. That number is their identity and they're good at what they do, but down years happen. It would be really interesting to hear from those guys about how do you keep your how do you keep your sense of self when when the market goes against the bets you've made? I don't know, but it's worth asking. The last thing is about the generational stuff. I think you know at fifty four there's a full generation that is behind us that's in their thirties now, and they're the ones running the world, and we're not and this guy who's quoting the Godfather and making all these pop culture references from the 80s and 90s he resonates just way too much with me and it's it's clear that in our mid 50s you know we're closer to the end than we are to the beginning of our careers and probably of our lives i don't know i don't plan on living to 110 years old imagine living to 110 years i'm 110 years old i'm all hopped up on vicodin and viagra Anyway, this guy is having this crisis and his credibility as a human being, his personality foibles are tolerated when he's up. But as he starts to lose steam, his idiosyncrasies shine through in a scary way. And it makes me wonder, like, you know, do people just tolerate you because you perform? You know, if you perform, you can do anything. You know, you can be Elon Musk. If you're Elon Musk, you can tell Bob Iger to go fuck himself. But if you're just some regular dude, you got to you got to play the game. This guy's little personality crisis hits a little bit close to home for me. Anyway, that's it, guys. We're going to be back in two weeks with episode number 200 of Crazy Money. Over the holidays, I'm going to take some time off, but I'm going to keep uploading Encore episodes. Whether you, I'm not going to upload anything that's not worth listening to a second time. 200 episodes, I got a lot to choose from in the catalog. And so I'm going to play some of the greatest hits that will be that'll be an opportunity for you to listen to some stuff from a couple of years ago and see how it's aged. And I think it's aged really, really well. I'll do another uh, holiday essay thing for your Christmas essays because those are fun. People tend to like those. And then we'll be back in the new year with with some uh, a new spin on crazy money. And so thank you again for all your loyalty for listening. If you if you've listened all the way to this point in the in the episode, there's obviously something wrong with you. You need more to do with your life. Um, but if you haven't, do please go write a recommendation on the Crazy Money page. Rate and review. Leave five stars and say something nice about the program so that others who are looking for a way to challenge themselves uh, and stimulate themselves intellectually will find our program. Okay, that's it. Thanks. See you in a couple of weeks.